Yes, let's, uh, let's adore him. Let's behold him in his word this morning. Our New Testament reading, we've been in the book of John. And the next uh, section of text goes perfectly for the first Sunday of Advent. So we will continue in John chapter 3, uh, verse 16 through 21. John chapter 3, verse 16 through 21. Follow along as I read. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's Christmas, right? He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And our sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, that very significant meeting of Gabriel and Mary. Luke chapter 1, we'll read verses 26 to 38, and then we'll bounce down to verse 46. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And then down in verse 46, we read this. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble state of his servant, For behold, from now on, all generations 
will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. This is God's word. You can be seated. Thank you for being here this morning. And I echo uh, one of the other elders' sentiments. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. And uh, I do thank God for all of you. I thank God that you're here today uh, on this Sunday after Thanksgiving, on this first Sunday of Advent, as we enter into another Advent season together. Uh, one of the many reasons I'm thankful uh, for this time every Sunday morning is because I love speaking to you. I love speaking to an audience that is very receptive uh, to God's Word. I love speaking to people who interact with God's Word. And uh, I don't have a lot of time to do this, but last week's message, if you weren't here, I apologize for that. Uh, you can go to the website or YouTube and catch it. But uh, last week's message uh, sparked a couple of good conversations after, after church, and I just want to touch on that real, real quick. Uh, and it, man, I love it when, when you sharpen me and, and, uh, and we can talk about these things together. But the uh, section of the scripture that talked about, in the final analysis, everybody gets what they want, okay? Saved people get God because that's what their new heart desires more than anything, Nothing on earth I desire more than you, Psalm 73. Okay? The lost person gets his afterlife, the rest of his eternity or her eternity, without God because that's what they wanted. And, 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 and a couple of people came and said, well, what about the person that, that really thinks that they want God, that really thinks they, they've got God? What about them? How do you, well, you know what? The, the Bible's very clear. They're going to be surprised people at the judgment. Just read Matthew 7, 21 to 23. And I guess what I didn't make clear last week, and that's why I love you so much, and you come and help me clarify things. Probably what I should have said was, the lost didn't want the biblical God. They wanted a God, but it was a God of their own making, a God that lets them continue to do pretty much what they want to do, a God that makes no demands on their life. And Matthew 7, I think, speaks of these types of people when it says, uh, many will come to me in that day. And what's that day? The final judgment. In the end, many will come to me that day and say, Lord, they even use the right terminology. Lord, didn't we cast out demons and raise the dead and, heal and do all these wonderful things? And God says, depart from me, I never knew you. Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. These people wanted a God on their own terms. A God that lets them put their works, their works, in the forefront. Not the gracious, undeserved works of God. So I guess I should have added the, the modifier. They didn't want the biblical God. The people that wind up in hell... Many of them wanted a God, but it was a God of their own making. It wasn't the God 
of the Bible. So continue to ponder that with me. And, uh, and uh, man, thank you for those conversations after church last week. I love that. Okay. So uh, I know there's probably many, much more I could say about that, but I still stand by the statement in the end, everybody gets what they want. Some people get God, some people, because that's what they want with their new heart. The rest of them don't get God because their old heart, the Bible's very clear. There's none who seeks God, none, none. And they're going to get a life in eternity future without God. And in the end, bottom line, that no matter how much you nuance it, that's what they wanted. They wanted to be God. They wanted to be in control. They wanted to call the shots, okay? Uh, whether it's an avid, atheistic God-hater or someone who thinks they've got the right God when they really didn't. So I hope that makes that clear as mud. I hope that adds a little bit to that, a little bit better understanding to that. Uh, it's a difficult teaching. It's a difficult uh, saying, okay? Uh, remember in John 6, that's why a lot of people left Jesus. These are hard sayings. You can take it. And many that day left him. So this whole idea of of uh, this whole notion, this whole biblical teaching of God is sovereign over salvation uh, causes uh, many people a lot of angst. Uh, but I hope for us, it will be a comforting, humbling doctrine that allows us to rest secure in the loving hands of God, knowing that no one or no thing is ever going to pluck us out of his hand. And I pray that every single one of you here today and that will ever be here in this building on Sunday morning will desire and want the God of this book, the God that calls you to confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Okay, so here we are. Uh, first Sunday of Advent. I mean, I love this season. I tell you that every year. Uh, and we're going to kick off another Advent season this morning by pondering together, corporate pondering, Mary's response to Gabriel. The angel sent from God to tell her that she was going to give birth to the long-awaited Messiah. So let's pray together and ask the Lord to teach us today. Father, thank you for another day in your word together. Speak to us, Father, from the words of your, this sacred text. Help us make proper application to our own lives, and yet may you be honored by that. Thank you for what you did at Christmas. Thank you for coming to rescue captive Israel, us, to deliver us from the bondage of sin. We praise your name for that, Father. So, Father, give us ears to hear and hearts to embrace your wonderful word. Incline our hearts to your truth for our good and your glory. And that's our prayer, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what stands out in the way Mary responded to this news from Gabriel? We're not going to look at her entire response today. We're just going to focus on the first uh, three or four verses, okay? And as we read this, these words, let's just go ahead and confess something right up front. That this moment in redemptive history is absolutely mind-boggling. It, it really is beyond 
our feeble peanut brain comprehension. An angel of God, Gabriel himself, comes to a teenage Jewish girl, not older than some of you in here today, and announces that she is going to be the human mother of God's only son. And that, that's amazing. And we should be amazed by that. If you're not amazed by that, something is wrong. And that's one of the things we're going to hopefully unpack today. But here's what we need to understand and, and make sure we've uh, got this clear in our heads. This is history. This is not some fable to explain why Christians believe what they believe, okay? It is history, non-negotiable historical fact. And not only is it history as a subject, it is our history. It is our family history. We are in the spiritual family tree, and I say spiritual because most of us here, probably all of us, are not Jewish, but we are in the spiritual family tree with Mary. We are descended from her spiritually in, as, the, in, as part of the true Israel, the spiritual Israel. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 9. It's vital and necessary to make sure we've got that because this is a vital and necessary part of history if man is to be redeemed from the tragic fall in the garden. And you know that story. We've, we've taught on and preached on that Genesis account many times from this pulpit. We've just wrapped it up in Kids Rock again on Wednesday night. We want to make sure that our children understand the dilemma that the human race is in because of the fall in the garden. And again, you, you, you know it. When Adam disobeyed and was kicked out of God's presence along with his wife Eve, he took the entire human race with him. Ever since the fall, every single human being has been born in Adam, born in sin. Glenn Scribner writes of the one who would come to save us with these words, step forward a second Adam. Mary's child is not from man. He is something else. He is a new humanity. And just as we were born in Adam's old humanity, so through Christ we can be born again into his spirit-filled life. As Charles Wesley wrote in his beautiful Christmas carol in 1739, speaking of Christ, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Scribner continues, that's the meaning of Christmas, and it's the virgin birth that guarantees it. See, the virgin birth is non-negotiable. You cannot discard or throw away the virgin birth. It's non 
negotiable. If Jesus is to be the qualified Savior of the world, the virgin birth is absolutely necessary. And Scribner writes, the virgin birth guarantees the result of Christmas. God's people, chosen from the foundation of the world, redeemed, delivered, paid for. So, Scribner says, don't hail Mary as full of grace, as Roman Catholics do, but thank God for her. Through her came the second Adam, who invited the whole world into his new humanity. This is the fullness of grace that we all need. And it's the fullness of grace that Christmas brings. So, we do thank God for Mary, for birthing our one and only Savior. And we also thank We're also thankful this morning for what we can learn from her life and specifically from these words of hers that we read today. So let's, I've got four things I want to throw out at you uh, that we see in Mary's response. First, we see that she was aware of God's activity in her life. She was aware of God's activity in her life. She is cognizant of the fact that God is moving in her life in a very unique way. She's fully aware of his blessing and his presence. Okay, we all confess that none of us will have an experience like Mary's. Okay, let's just go ahead and lay that out there, get get that out of the way. Nobody's going to be pregnant with the Messiah, okay, ever again. That experience is not going to happen to anybody. But here's what I want you to ponder today together. If Christianity means life from God, if it means being born from above, if it means being transferred from darkness to light, if it means being moved from death to life, if it means a new creation, a new birth, if it means being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and I hope you'll recognize all of those phrases as scriptural phrases, if it means, if Christianity means all those things, if it means all these radical happenings, then isn't it obvious or wouldn't it be obvious that anyone to whom salvation has happened must be aware of the fact that something radical has happened? No, not being pregnant with the Messiah. Okay, we've already dealt with it. We've already pushed that aside. Okay. But new birth, new birth from above, spirit-given life, being dead in trespasses and sins, but 
now being alive to God, a new creation, all these radical things. If that happened to you, don't you think you'd be aware of it? Listen, we we said this many times in many different ways. Salvation is not a decision I make. It is not something I do. It is not the end product of my actions. It is the result of God's actions. Mary was aware that God was doing something in her life. And what I'm proposing to, to you today, this morning, is that the person who has become a Christian also has a spirit-wrought awareness of the activity of God in their life. You may not understand it fully. You may not comprehend it completely. Like the blind man who was healed by Jesus. Remember? When pressed by the Pharisees, I can't answer all your questions about who Jesus is. But I know this. I'm changed. He did something in my life. I used to be blind and now I see. Some of you may even be trying to run from it right now. But ultimately, you are aware that something radical and life-altering is taking place in your life. And as you awaken to it, you find that it is beautiful and wonderful and beyond accurate expression. You realize that your priorities are being rearranged. Your likes and your dislikes and your wants and your needs and your desires are being transformed. Are you aware of this? That's God's presence in your life. Born-again people have an abiding awareness of God, an awareness that He is dealing with them and changing them in a loving, compassionate, caring, firm, fatherly way. They know that He is concerned for them, that His hand is upon them, and that they are being transformed. The one who created you, who formed you and knit you in your mother's womb, is remaking you into the likeness of his son. And when this truth grips you, it makes all the difference in how you live. Mary was aware, very aware of being dealt with by God. And I say to you this morning, so is every Christian. Sometimes we fight it. Sometimes we kick against it. Sometimes we question what God is doing. Sometimes, if we were honest, we would say we don't even like it. But then sometimes we welcome it and we relish it. And we desire it and we glory in it. And as we grow, we find the welcoming aspect of it becoming more normal. Scripture tells us what's happening, right? We've seen these verses many times. Philippians 2.13. For God is at work in you. 
both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Or 2 Corinthians 3.18, we, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed, are being transformed, present active tense. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So the first thing we see, or one of the first things we see in Mary's response is she was, she was aware. There was an awareness. There was a God awareness. She was aware that God was working in her life. And my proposal to you today is so is every Christian. Every Christian is aware of, of God working. Secondly, not only was she, she, was aware, not only, not only was she aware, she was amazed at it. She was amazed at what God was doing. Mary couldn't believe what was happening to her, to her. Should this happen to me in my lowest state? I'm a teenager. I'm a, pretty much a peasant. I'm, I'm unknown. I'm not important. I'm, I'm a nobody. Handmaiden. How can this be? Is this really happening? So let's, t- let's, let's take from that and ask ourselves this question. Are you amazed at what God is doing in your life? And that we've already crossed the bridge. You're not going to be pregnant with the Messiah, okay? So we're not equating it. But my my. Suggestion to you today is, while not in the same category as Mary's, there's only one mother of the Messiah. She is unique. But we will be amazed. That's what I want you to ponder this morning. That's what I want you to think about. Are you amazed at what God is doing in your life. And here's what I want you to think about. This may be, and I'm not, not going to be dogmatic, I don't have um, a black and white text to, to nail this one home. I see Scripture pointing to it. But I just want to lay it before you this morning on this first Sunday of Advent. This second point may be one of the acid tests of true Christianity. Amazement over the work of God in our life. Let's try to unpack that. For example, do you you ever say or think uh, things like this? Uh, I used to never... Think about my soul. I used to never think about the spiritual aspect of my life. But now it's my chief concern. It outweighs everything else. All the physical aspects of my life. My soul is the most important part of me. Or... I never used to think about death. I never thought about death. 
But I think of it often now. Not in a morbid way. Not in a morbid way at all. But for basically two God-honoring reasons. Number one, I know that my days on earth have a specific number assigned by God. And I don't want to waste the days I have left to live. I just don't want to waste them. And number two, because I know the glorious face of, my, of Jesus, my Savior, awaits my longing and eager eyes. So, yeah, I, I used to never think about death, but now I do in a God-honoring, God-pleasing way. I think I've shared this with you before. I was reading one of the Puritans a while back, and I forget who it was, but he said that the, probably the number one duty of a pastor is to prepare his people for their death. And that's what I, I strive to do. Don't waste your life. As we've said many times, we're all going to die. None of us are going to live on this planet forever. The only thing that will interrupt us, uh, our physical death is Jesus returning before that. Either way, you need to be ready. Either for death or for Jesus' return. I used to never think about death. Now I think about it a lot in a positive way. It motivates me to live. Thinking about death motivates me to live the abundant life that Jesus came to give me and has given me. What about this one? The Bible. The Bible used to be the most boring book in the world. And the idea of reading it for pleasure, (laughs) are you kidding? Unthinkable. But now, It's the book of books. It's the book of books to me, and I can't get enough of it. And my constant prayer is to open my eyes, Lord, that I may behold wonderful things from thy law. Or or this one more. more. Um, I rarely prayed unless I was in trouble or someone I loved was really sick have you noticed most of all of our prayer requests are always about sickness and health type things? You hardly ever find that in the Bible. That's, that's funny. Not to, not, I'm not saying don't pray for, for sick people and don't pray for your health issues. I'm just saying. Okay? <laughs> um, or maybe there was some a war or some calamity. But when things were going well... I didn't think too much about praying. Now I see prayer as wonderful communion with the one who created me. A wonderful time of communion with the the Father, my Heavenly Father. And I'm growing to love bringing my feeble words to Him. And mostly now just to thank Him for all that He's done for me. Oh yeah, I still bring requests. Still pray for sick people. But as I get older, Thanksgiving begins to dominate the percentage 
aspect of my prayers. And we could go on and on. Those are just things. It's, it's like we're saying, when we look at our lives, we look at our lives before Jesus, we look at our lives after Jesus, and we say, is this really possible? Am I the same person? Can it be? I believe this is what Mary was feeling. And not just Mary. We could have gone to 1 Corinthians 15 and seen, seen the same thing in Paul. Listen to this, beginning at verse 3. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 10. Listen, listen to what Paul says. I think this, this is right in line with what Mary is, is thinking at this moment in history. Paul writes this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and he was buried, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And I get goosebumps right now. I just got goosebumps just popped up on my arms. Listen, let's continue. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But, and here's the beautiful thing, by the grace of God, key phrase, by the grace of God, I think that's what Mary's thinking right now. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them and then it's like the Holy Spirit, he catches himself. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Do you see what Paul's saying there? Verse 8, he, he, appear, he appeared to all these people, and then he appeared to me. <laughs> to me. Can you believe that? I can't. I can't believe it. He appeared to me. Verse 9, I'm not fit to be called an apostle. This is unbelievable. This is incomprehensible. This is mind-boggling. Sound, that sounds like Mary, doesn't it? Verse 10, but by God's amazing undeserved grace, I am what I am, an apostle of God. Listen, beloved, by God's amazing undeserved grace, you are what you are, a son or daughter of God. If you're saved, by God's amazing grace, you are what you are. And only by God's grace, only by God's grace. See, Paul, Paul, Mary, they're basically saying, I can't explain it. I can't explain this. Grace is the only explanation. I don't, don't understand it. I've, Paul is saying, I've undergone a complete overhaul, a massive Explanation-defying transformation, a total reversal of life. Paul says, I was against the church of God. I am now a part of it. 
actually a leader of it. Can you believe that? I was killing Christians. I was putting Christians in prison. Now I'm leading them and teaching them. This is too good. This is too good to be true. But it is. That which I persecuted vehemently, I'm now preaching about passionately. It's radical. I'm a totally new creature. Don't you see it? I mean, you've read the New Testament. You've read Paul's letters. He never got over what was happening in his life. He never got over it. He was constantly amazed. He knew that it was totally God's grace at work. And that truth sustained him through grueling circumstances, imprisonments, beatings, shipwreck, persecutions, near-death experiences. And beloved, that's the way God works in people's lives. He does a radical work. And not just as individuals. Are you, are you amazed at what he's done throughout the history of his people? If you're not, you just haven't read the Bible enough. You need to get in the Word if you're not. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, Christmas is an announcement of one of the wonderful works of God. The whole Bible is a record of the activity of God. God creating, God coming down to man after he had fallen, God making a nation, God giving it kings, God sending prophets. When the fullness of time had come, God then sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. The message of Christmas is a proclamation and an announcement of what God has done in the person of his only begotten son. Just as Mary said at the end of her song, he who is mighty has done great things for, for me. And holy is his name. Listen, dear ones, listen, please. This is biblical Christianity. Don't settle for the milk toast namby-pamby stuff. Don't, don't settle for that. This is Christianity. Not people coming into a building once a week and doing their little church-going thing for God. But people who are amazed at God's grace and amazed at what it does to them and what it moves them to do when it grips them by the heart and shakes them out of their man-centered, nonchalant, moral, non-radical, dispassionate, business-as-usual, American, democratic Christianity. That's the people that are going to be stunned that's the Matthew 7 people that are going to be shocked at what Jesus says to them when they stand before him. It's people who sing from the depths of their heart and soul the words of Charles Wesley. And can it be, can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me, 
who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? My question to you today on this first Sunday of Advent is, is that you? Are you amazed that Jesus died for you? Because that's where the amazement begins, at the cross. And then it carries over into what he continues to do in your life as he prepares you for eternal glory. To not be amazed by God's work in your life is not a good sign. It's not a good sign to be nonchalant about it, to be, uh, uh, oh, I deserve this. That's not a good sign. Number three, we've got to move, we've got to move, we've got to move. In verse 38 and 48, we see that she was humbled. She was humbled by God's choice of her. I believe that points to the fact for all of us that the moment we, re- we realize something of the nearness and presence and character of God, we see ourselves as we are in all of our unworthiness. This is a consistent story throughout Scripture, right? I mean, we see it right here. Uh, when Mary visits Elizabeth, we see it expressed by Elizabeth, verse 42, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? See, even Elizabeth expressed this attitude. I, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve a visit from the mother of the Messiah. Why me? Isaiah, classic. He sees the Lord. He gets his vision of the Lord, high and exalted, in the train of his robe, filling the temple. In verse 5, he says, Woe is me, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in, a pe- in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me literally means condemn me, damn me, send me to hell. I don't deserve to be in your presence. Job, same thing. End of that book, 42, verses 5 and 6. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now now my eye sees you. And then is Job nonchalant about it? No. Therefore, I despise myself. I hate myself. I despise myself and I repent. I repent in dust and ashes. Peter, New Testament, Luke 5. They've been fishing all night. They hadn't caught a thing. Jesus said, okay, well, just go out one more time, cast out there. Come on, who is this guy? All right, just to shut him up, we'll do this. And you know the story. They could hardly pull the fish in. And verse 8 says, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. I don't deserve to be in your presence. Get away. Here's the principle, beloved. Here's the principle. If you think you deserve to be in God's presence, you're not. 
Please write that down. Please remember that. If any of us ever think or ever even toy with the idea that we deserve to be in the presence of God, that we deserve to be in his family, that we deserve his nearness, then he's not near. He's not with us. What does James 4, 6 say? God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's unpack that principle some more. If you feel you deserve to be forgiven, you haven't been. You're still in your sins. If you feel you deserve to be blessed by God, you will be cursed. You will not be blessed by God. If you feel you deserve heaven, then you are on an express elevator for hell going down. And I'll give extra credit to anyone who could tell me what movie that line came from, okay? Ty knows it. I know Ty knows it. <laughs> Here's the question. Here's the bottom line question. Are you dominated by an overwhelming sense that all the good gifts in life coming down from God are in spite of who you are. Not because of who you are, in spite of who you are in all of our wretchedness and sinfulness. Again, that is Christianity. That's what sets Christianity totally apart from all man-made religions. Because what do they usually do? Okay? Do this, live up to this standard, and you'll be rewarded. That is not Christianity. Christianity is totally opposite of that. God does it all in spite of who we are. God lavishes us with grace in spite of our wretchedness. One more, number four. What did, the, what did this all do to her? Well, obviously, verses 46 to 49, she was moved to offer joyful praise. <laughs> my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. Question. Does thanksgiving and worship and praise and exaltation well up from your soul when you consider what God has done to save you, to sanctify you, and to bring you to himself? Is it possible? Think on this hard now. Is it possible to be a Christian without gratitude and praise to God? I think not. I think not. So let's examine ourselves. Let's wrap it up as, as we close. Think about where we left off our study of 2 Peter. You know, we just begun 2 Peter. We're in chapter 1. We had finished up around verse 11. And I want to make a connection this morning. Okay, for the last two weeks, we've talked about that. Okay, 
Remember verse 10 of 2 Peter 1? Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Here's what I want to propose to you today. On this first Sunday of Advent, as we begin another Christmas season together as a church family. I believe, I really believe, I truly believe that we can use Mary's response to Gabriel as an aid in confirming our election. Maybe you don't need to do that. Maybe you've settled that. Maybe the last two messages, you've settled that. You've confirmed it. But maybe you're still wrestling. Okay? In Mary's responses, we see another way to confirm God's choosing of us. Okay? We're going to take the four points we've just talked about. Number one, the elect person will have an awareness of God's activity in their life. The elect person will have an awareness of God's activity in their life. God's presence will be an undeniable reality. They will be immovably confident that God is with them. What is Jesus' name? Emmanuel, God with us. And the elect person is confident that Jesus will never leave them or forsake them. Number two, the elect person will be amazed Amazed, constantly amazed at the grace of God. Amazing grace will be the theme song of their, of their life, and they will never get over being saved. It'll never become nonchalant to them. It'll never be old hat to them. It'll never be something they don't want to talk about or hear about from the pulpit or in Sunday school or in small group or in conversations with believing friends. Third, the elect person will be humbled by God's choice of them. They know that but for the grace of God, hell would be their destiny. They know that. They know that is what they deserved. And they know they are not getting it, not because of anything in them, but totally because of God's choice of them and Christ's payment for them with his blood. And they live in a constant state of humility because the elect are not arrogant as the caricatures paint us. They are, the, 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 the Calvinist haters paint us. We're not arrogant. We're humble. We're like Mary. We're like Paul. How can this be? How can this be that I belong to God? Fourth, the elect person's life will be characterized by consistent and joyful praise. The elect person's life will be characterized by consistent and joyful praise. Their hearts will overflow with great thanksgiving to their God and Father. We will say like Mary, my soul, my soul, my inner being from the depths of my innermost self magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. We will say like Habakkuk, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice. There might not be any figs on the vine or any cattle in the stall, but I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. We will say like David, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving no matter what. No matter what. What about you? Are you sure of your election? Are you sure you belong to God? 
If not, settle it today. Settle it today. Today is the day. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. Repent of your sin and confess Jesus as Lord. And he will lift you up out of the miry pit of sin and give you new and abundant life forever. Let's wrap this up by looking at the last two verses of Mary's song. Look at it, verse 54 and 55. Look what she says. He, being God, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Helped. The Hebrew word means to come to the aid of, to devote oneself to, to give oneself to. Beloved, this is Christmas. This is Christmas. The massive help of God. God giving himself in the person of his son Jesus to a world in desperate need. To the lost sheep of Israel. To his people scattered. To his elect. To his chosen. He gave himself to the world, specifically to a remnant chosen by grace, to spiritual Israel, to his people made up of believers from every people, tongue, tribe, and nation all over the world, and to every believer here this morning. At Christmas, God gave himself to us. He has helped us in the fullest sense of the word. He has done for us in Jesus what we could have never done for ourselves. Next phrase, in remembrance of his mercy. Listen, Christmas proves that God didn't forget us. (laughs) Doesn't that fill your heart with gratitude? Christmas proves that God didn't forget us. He didn't abandon us. He didn't just let us live and die and then go to hell for our sins. At Christmas, God showed forth his mercy to a people in serious need. You. And me. Then she says, as he spoke to our fathers, Christmas proves God's faithfulness. God said this to our fathers, and now he's doing it. (laughs) Christmas proves that God keeps his promises. Christmas shouts loudly and clearly that God is a covenant-keeping God. Lloyd-Jones said the incarnation is the supreme example of fulfilled prophecy. The supreme example of God's faithfulness to his promises. And then Mary says, and to his offspring forever. Think about that. To his offspring forever. That's us. Oh, wait. Sound like Joe Biden there. That's us. That's us. That's every believer in the world. And every believer in this room. We are God's offspring. Jesus was born of Mary so that we could be born of God. Jesus experienced human birth so that we could experience spiritual birth. Jesus partook of flesh and blood so that we could partake of the divine nature of God that we learned about in Peter's letter. 
Jesus was born in a filthy stable so that he could be born in a much filthier place. Our hearts. Kind of makes you want to sing like Mary, doesn't it? My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. May this be a blessed Advent season for you. Let's pray together. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Emmanuel. Thank you for the activity, your activity in our life. Thank you for the radical transformation that you've begun in us when you saved us. Keep doing it, Lord, and keep amazing us. For the nonchalant believer in here, if that kind of person is even possible to exist, I pray that you would ignite the fires of amazement in their lukewarm heart and open their eyes to the true wonder of who you are and what you've done at Christmas. Our souls magnify you and our spirits rejoice in who you are. We thank you now for this time at the table as we remember and commune with our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.